This is the Brilliant Podcast, episode 24. in a world where most stories are just variants of the same story. Good beats evil, cowboys and Indians, profits and loss. The story has been told a thousand million times, and the ubiquity of it is what I would call a great tragedy. The Brilliant Podcast attempts to tell stories about the brilliant ones, the ones who lived human-sized lives that may seem larger, the ones who dream beyond recognition, the ones who are satisfied not answering every question that critics ask, and just living with the contradictions. This is an attempt to tell different kinds of stories, ones with complex moral plays, ones that aren't so clearly stories, and ones that are of human size. Our motivation to tell these tales is a desire to see a proliferation of different stories, and not just the simple morality plays of popular culture, or the inverted, but otherwise identical, stories of the radical milieu. I'm your host, Aragorn, joined by co-host Bellamy, and in the background, our sound engineer, Roy Burton. So if you haven't listened to episode 23, I would urge you to do that right now, because we are basically going to pick up where we left off, and last week we were talking about, oh yeah, the date is February 19th, for those of you who are interested. Uh, Last week we were talking about the libertarian right, and we ran out of time, which is sometimes a nice thing, sometimes an unpleasant thing, and I had just gotten done reading some longish quotes. One was from Murray Rothbard in his essay, Capitalism versus Statism. And one was a definition of the non-aggression principle. And so I wanted to finish up our discussion talking about the libertarian right, and I might be indulged by Aragorn, we'll see, by talking about the problems with the libertarian right. So the libertarian right, of course, very much wanting to claim the term freedom. It's always about freedom, individualism, self-creation, the ability to be your own person, and a lot of those are similar to anarchist rhetoric. And then, of course, um, there's an attempt by some on the libertarian right to claim the word anarchist, to claim the word anarchist in contrast to what they see as communist. Um, There's even a uh, show that I tried to reach out to, Anarchast, I think I brought up once here, where they style themselves as the largest anarchist show on the internet. Um, and coming from an anarcho-capitalist perspective. And some of the problems with the libertarian right are ethical, and some of them go actually a little bit deeper than that. And so the first and most obvious one is the problem of property. People like Robert Nozick want to base their entire ethic around saying individuals who can be reasonably demonstrated to be competent, sane, mature, coming together and making deals with each other, that is the basis of ethics. Whatever comes out of that, whether it's massive inegalitarianism, even if it's slavery, is still just so long as that moment when two people come together and make a deal is a fair deal. And I, uh, you know, when I first encountered Nozick, the, the most obvious thing is the problem of property. 
where does it come from? How do you decide uh, the just distribution in the first place? And Nozick, along with a lot of people of this tendency, are descendants of Locke, John Locke, the you know, Americana uh, philosopher par excellence. And the problem with Locke, in, it, there's problems with Locke in theory and in practice. In theory, it's the fact that he says the way that property comes about is you go out and you claim it. You claim it by mixing your labor, is his phrase, with the land. You work the land, the land is yours, so long as you leave land for others. Theoretically, that's pretty dubious in the first place, because you still have this uh, strange kind of you know, boundaries being drawn just by your presence. It's an incredibly anthropocentric perspective. I mean, what about the, the other beings, that the non-human beings that inhabit that place? But then in practice, it's just nonsense to me. I mean, it's nonsense in the fact that we obviously live in a, a world that's limited spatially, and there are more and more fucking people all the time. And I don't know how anyone who's really being honest with themselves can even give an account like this. There's a, about three or four different places I want to go here. Sure. I, this term freedom, yeah, and, yeah. and I guess this is sort of the origin of why we even wanted to have this conversation in the, to, well, yeah, to start with. Yeah, it was with. actually one of the first conversations I had with you. You were saying how um, you were bothered by the fact that they, people on the right took up that rhetoric. Well, that they, that they quote-unquote get to own it. Right. I mean, clearly, like, the traditional left tends not to use the term. Actually, I'm going to give a, a very traditional definition of the, of the term communism just to frame the conversation. Communism is a political theory of system in which all property and wealth is owned in a classless society by all members of, of a community. It enforces extensive negative controls on personal liberties and freedom, <laughs> and a collective needs of the masses overrules individual rights. Wow, yeah. <laughs> it's a very loaded definition. It's excellent. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but mostly why, why I, I bring it up is because it's pretty explicit about, about basically being hostile towards quote-unquote freedom. freedom yeah. and, and so with the way in which the right here defines freedom, you know, I, I, I think it's entirely bogus, but but that's because I I guess I, I have the motivation that I I think that you know <clears throat> whatever a not left or right position could be one that embraces freedom and and perhaps that's just me being uh, having a fantasy that that we can detach a term from from the context that it's mostly comes out of and so perhaps it's um, a waste of time but but you know it's a thought exercise I guess. Um, uh, for me, the core issue at the heart of everything is this: is this question of property. Um, I've I've always uh, this has always been my rub uh, of everything, which which is not sort of a um, you know my approach isn't isn't sort of the traditional leftist that that is either this uh, collective ownership of the of of property, but I guess is a you know traditional in a different sense of the word. Definition, which basically says that the idea that any individual or group owns property is a big fucking mess, and and is very much at the root of what we would call civilization and the problems of civilization. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the mere fact that pretty much any conversation that you have with someone from the libertarian right, or anything you read by someone from the libertarian right, within minutes, property has come up several times, and the fact that that is seen as the foundation of what freedom is, to me speaks to my next problem with it, which is the commodity fetishism. 
Um, rarely is there a, any kind of critique of the commodity as such. I mean, I, I was really amused a few weeks ago when we brought up the, the existentialist capitalist guy because he was talking about that a little bit. But, yeah, I just don't want a world that is about accumulating stuff. I don't want a world where what's seen as creative expression is making some sort of product and bringing it to the market and having your commodity go to war with the other commodities and, you know, who has produced the most desirable thing. Um, I think a lot of these um, people, that I think if, if I'm taking them in good faith and trying to have the best perspective on them, it's that they like being left alone and they like the idea of, oh, my hobby is going to be the way that I support myself, so I'm going to make this cool thing, and I'm going to take it, and other people are going to think it's cool, and they're going to give me some money, and we're all going to get along. That's not so ugly to me, but I think in practice that's never what it's going to be like. And um, and I, I don't want... My, my idea of freedom is not about being left alone or accumulating stuff. Yeah, I, I guess in my experience with the Libertarian Right Night... I once was uh, uh, spent a day, maybe two days, at a book in the book fair context, with a person who was an agorist, and a person who was a mutualist, and a person who I guess called they didn't actually explicitly say it, but I think they were an ANCAP, huh. and and um, but when they really talked about what their daily life looked like, it I wouldn't say it looked miserable, but but it we wouldn't call it political. Like in other words, they were just small businessmen, uh-huh. and and um, and I think that when they talk about what their their sort of utopia utopia looks like, it doesn't look so dissimilar to how they're living currently. Mm-hmm. But perhaps maybe they'd be more successful <laughs> um, because they all just sort of seemed like suffering small business people who really were just aching to talk about their businesses. Yeah, um, which <clears throat> uh, you know. Obviously, I, I'm qualified to have that conversation with people, and I recognize how incredibly boring that conversation is. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, that sticks perfectly, actually, to the next thing I wanted to say, which is, um, you know, lately I've been recognizing more and more that the reason, uh, like, I, when I try to have a, a debate with someone and we're not getting through to each other, it's, it's not because we have... Um, necessarily have what might be called an ethical disagreement, even though I tend to stay away from that language. It's because we we disagree before the fact. We disagree ontologically, by which I mean we disagree about what the world is before we even disagree about how we should live. And when it comes to libertarian right, one of the problems that you're getting at is I just reject this idea of homo economicus. I reject the idea that the, the highest calling of the person is to labor and to express themselves creatively through their labor. I reject that everyone's a rational, narrowly self-interested person that's trying to always make a deal and get the best deal that they can. I, I think that's um, you know, a toxic pattern that we've fallen into with civilization, but I, I don't think that's what the human being has to be, and that's not what I want the human being to be. That's a very, very brave statement. <laughs> <laughs> An anarchist who doesn't think that people should be economics. <laughs> um, I... I guess these types of orientation questions do tend to frame people much more than they, they care to admit. So the fact that, you know, most anarchists, when they start to 
boil down to what their career is going to be, become nurses and teachers, sort of says something a little deeper about sort of the anarchist imagination and, 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 um, uh, and so, or pot farmers, I guess would be the third option. Uh And, and so similarly this, you know, this question for the libertarian, right. You know, like the demographics of the libertarian right are incredibly narrow. You know, the, their gender disparity is more like 80 oh, to 90% yeah. rather than I would say that maybe in anarchy land nowadays is like 60% uh, male gendered. Um, you know, the, the, these sorts of questions that they're kind of meta questions. They're kind of, you know, they, they're, they're embarrassing questions sometimes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so there is a way in which anarchists are the, uh, ultimately are, in the tradition of charity. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I, I thought the one that you were missing there was the social worker. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or the sex worker who also, it's, it's all about caring, right? Right. Caring for people. Well, actually we should get into, did you want to touch on the non-aggression? Principle? Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the non-aggression principle, again, if you, if you didn't listen to 23, please do that now because, uh, we laid out a pretty clear definition of the non-aggression principle that, um, we also were laughing about it a bit because it sounds incredibly legalistic. And again, I think that's one of the, you know, if you're talking about the personality behind the ideology or the stereotypical personality behind the ideology, it's this person who wants, they want to clear boundaries. They want to make a deal. They want to be rational. They want, why can't everyone agree to this principle and so on and so forth? Did you, did you want to touch on it? I have a few things to say. No, go, go ahead. Well, go ahead. <laughs> when I've had these conversations with people, which haven't been, uh, so many, but what I like to go to right away is to say, okay, so you're talking about imposing force. You don't want to impose force on other people. What do you do three or so times a day? You eat. What is eating? It is absolutely aggression against another being. And that almost always leads to a quick sort of befuddling, like, wait a minute. When I have say this to someone and and I say, well, yeah, it's because you're sphere of understanding, your sphere of what ethics is, it's entirely human-based. It's entirely human-based. And um, with few exceptions, I've actually, I have encountered people who are ardent vegans who uh, adhere to the non-aggression principle, but for the most part, it's a way of thinking about the world that is so anti-life and is so anti-ecological. The reality of the biological world is that aggression and force are being imposed all the time. And I'm not talking about um, some kind of, you know, ferocious uh, war of all against all. Of course, there's an extremely high amount of mutualism, cooperation, uh, mutual support in the the non-human world, but there's, you know, a lot of it is uh, your life ends when in the jaws of another. And so to build a whole ethic of life around this idea that you're not going to impose force, I mean, your immune system is constantly imposing force on things around it. Your active eating is constantly imposing force. I, I think it's um, uh, just at odds with reality. Hmm. It's interesting that that's where you go. I I guess for me, I think that, that that criticism gets waved away pretty easily by saying, well, the non-aggression principle clearly does assume <laughs> logical actors, i.e. humans. Mm-hmm. And so, the, so, so it's not that it is at odds with ecological reality. It's just not relevant. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would, again, say that that's, uh, 
a, a way of it, it, having an incredibly anthropocentric perspective, but I understand that a lot of people are just saying, fine, I'll take on the anthropocentric yeah, perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's it. I think yeah. that, that's sure. fair. Yeah, um, yeah I, I guess for me, I, you know, I feel the same thing about NAP as I sort of feel about pacifism or or even or even veganism at this point in my life. Mm-hmm. It's not that I don't I don't see the point of it and it's also not as if I don't think that 70% of the time it's totally appropriate yeah, sure, to have sure. to have these sort of values and or or active principles that I, you know, play out reality with. It's just, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the edge cases in a thing that I only think is, you know, 70% relevant in general. Mm-hmm. So so for me the, the I guess I, I I'm not sure that I I any longer believe that having a, a a set of ethical principles is how you should interact with the world like right. like that's that again feels like a sort of weird substrate that's all sort of very man made and very sure. you know made in the and made in the churches and and then filtered out into a secular way in the ways in which we talk about it nowadays but. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they would want to say, we have a foundationalist ethic, it's based on this principle, it's really important that we adhere to this principle, and to be wishy-washy in the way that you're talking about it, and in the way that I'm going to talk, agree with you, is um, then you're just opening the door to having no basis for ethics, and then anything goes. Yeah, and I think that that's I probably agree with them, <laughs> but, but, to, but to put it a different way, and that's why they'll never win. Uh, how do you mean? Uh, by which I mean, if you are going to look at the sort of people who've made an impact on the world in the in the political sense of the term that we're using here when we're talking about people with a, with an understanding of a different political order, by and large, the way in which you come to a different political order is through oh, force. Force. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. I think that that's that that's that's the easy way to have the conversation and just basically say force isn't an ethical quantity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, although that is uh, at odds with what last week you were saying. You know, some people say there are more ANCAPs than in the United States than there are any other kind of mm-hmm. anarchists, and so they could say, "Well, look, we're winning by because our ideas are superior, and all we have to do is disseminate the idea, and eventually the idea will happen." And the, I would say the other way in which they're winning is that yeah, they're. Ethics are not uh, extremely far removed from uh, an even larger portion of the country that you know, says we believe in free markets and we just want. And that's that's actually the only only reason why I think anybody says that there are more ANCAPs than huh. non. Because I, I don't actually accept that. Uh, huh. um, yeah, I don't accept that. Yeah, and again, as we said last week, I think there's I've yet to encounter any kind of reliable yeah. measurement. Um. Yeah, and then the last thing I would say about it is uh, I just have the kind of meta-ethical disagreements we're touching on. I I, I don't live uh, a way that embraces natural rights. I don't live in a way that embraces consequentialism and says you can you can quantify the good, you can quantify people's happiness and, and act accordingly. I just, I think that's a completely flattening view um, that engages in hysterical reification and... Uh, and the last thing is, I don't like the kind of morality that goes along, especially with um, a more Randian sort of view that says, I'm entitled to my property because I'm this free-willed person, and I have, I have self-made, I have, through the exercise of my will and my reason, arrived at where I am, and therefore I deserve it. I totally reject that kind of moralism. Um, I reject that 
view of free will in general. I think um, if you take a relational view of the world, the idea of being free willed, of being somehow an, an uncaused cause in the world, is this uh, fantasy of alienation that somehow you're totally disconnected from everything around you. Um, not only do I think it's false, I think it's uh, grotesque, actually. Yeah, I guess I mostly, uh, when I think about the sort of meta questions that are involved here, there is a way in which these people are much more in an active dialogue with the current existing order, because they're basically, like, to the extent to which they're foundationalists, you know, Scalia, who just died <laughs> this past weekend, you know, is often talk, talked about as being this uh, constitutional fundamentalist. Originalist, and, yeah. An originalist. And, and so there's a way in which those, like... The conversations we're talking about that the libertarian right have and that the, you know, goddamn Supreme Court yeah. people are having, they're they're much more in, in line with each other totally, yeah. than than the kind of conversations that I find interesting. I, I don't find the Constitution to be a particularly interesting document. Mm-hmm. I find Ed Daggers Drawn to be an interesting document <laughs> that I would much rather talk about as being a template for future legal order. Would you call yourself an Ed Daggers Drawn originalist? <laughs> <laughs> or do you think it's a living document? <laughs> okay. So we could go in a few directions from here. Oh, and I, I guess just uh, the capstone here would be to say, if I, I totally invite dialogue about this. Um, I don't know if we have libertarian right listeners, but uh, or people who care about these sorts of things, hopefully at least the latter. But yeah, please uh, email us at thebrilliant at thebrilliant.org if anything here is interesting or if it's uninteresting. Well, we move on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there, there was an interview with uh, Kevin Tucker, the anarcho-primitivist, done by It's Going Down. Computer of, computer of. Computer of, computer of. Computer of, computer of. And it's... Um, fairly long, and um, I actually found myself agreeing quite a lot with what Kevin had to say, and so I don't want to talk about the bulk of it, but uh, there were two... Meaning you don't think that Facebook is uh, where the revolutionary <laughs> agents are going to find each other and and coordinate activity toward to, to disrupting the existing order? Yeah, <laughs> that's, that is that is where I It's where a I pretty at. controversial <laughs> argument. But uh, there were two bits here that... I thought might be uh, interesting for us to engage with the first, and I'll just read a little bit of what Kevin said here. He said, We, as a culture, have to look up and assess the big picture instead of falling into the cracks of the details. Being imperfect is a perfectly fine placeholder compared to inaction caused by trying to simply be, quote, right, end quote. In the 90s, there was a kind of rowdy spirit of anarchism that I often felt like profane existence kind of typified. Building through the late 90s that started to transition toward this crime-think-style personal revolution, I feel like that kind of paved the way toward the blogs and social media, a focus on the individual over the ideas. That flows directly into what praxis looks like, and action falls by the wayside, end quote. And, you know, a lot of times with uh, these conversations among people who have been around for a long time, uh, someone like me is totally left without the context. And mm-hmm. when someone says something like this, I think, well, maybe he's right. And so I was just kind of curious, especially because Kevin was echoing something that you say, which mm-hmm. is the, the big men problem. 
the, the idea that uh, certain individuals get focused almost with the sort of brand or tendency of anarchism, and that that's uh, one of the, the bad things about our conversations. I was wondering, do, do you agree with the narrative that Kevin's saying here? Well, I definitely do you, don't and, agree with his conclusions, but I like the story he's telling. Um, I, I do agree, you know, so profane existence, for those who you who don't know was basically like the periodical for the crusty punk set. Oh. Um, so leather jackets, patches on jackets, big hair, all that stuff very much typifies the profane existence vibe. Whereas crime think for better and for worse, very much comes out of the hardcore kid, uh, or hardcore scene. Sure. And so the look of the hardcore kid isn't so different from like the suburban kid. I mean, in the 90s, it was like big puffy shoes, hooded sweatshirt, baggy shorts. Obviously, nowadays, that's you know much more like REI gear plus. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but that range very much sort of is somewhere, somewhere that looks like a middle class kid. Yes, yeah. is, is the hard is the hardcore, and so so aesthetically, what he's referring to is the fact that you know when anarchists were at an event in the nineties, it looked like anarchists were at the event. Yeah. Whereas nowadays, it looks like you know some some active hikers <laughs> are, are at the event. I mean, that's on on one level, that's what Ke- what Kevin's referring to, and since Kevin is very much like he performs in a band or or did that uh, appeals to the profane type crowd. To some extent, he's speaking to his fan base there. Um, But on the other level, what he's talking about is this idea of um, something, a spirit larger than the individual. So perhaps he's even evoking his sort of quasi-spiritual sort of message. So that's that spirit that... Okay, that that feral spirit that yeah. uh, that he's trying to tap into, he's he's differentiating that from the the, the the spirit of the of the person on social media, and that's where I think um, he just loses his way. I mean, he's making an assertion, and but I don't think that profane existence with again, you know, people damn near dressing like peacocks was uh, was not a highly individuated scene. It absolutely was. There were t- tons of big men in the profane scene, uh, profane existence world, um, who just, nobody knows who they are nowadays. So, so the, the problem that he's talking about social media is a particular type of instantiation of it, but the problems always existed. Yeah. And it was interesting seeing the dialogue with the, it's going down interview where I'm not sure who they were. They were pushing a bit and saying, don't you think social media can be used sometimes? And that in fact, uh, maybe we even, need to use it because people are so atomized that that's one of the only ways they even know that things are going on. And he held an absolute hard line of, you know, basically you should, he said, you know, I don't want to be prescriptive, but basically you should get off it and it's totally worthless. And, you know, I don't engage much at all with social media really for personal reasons, but, um, you do. And I was wondering if you had any kind of reply to that. Well, for starters, Kevin's lying. Uh, Kevin logs onto f- Facebook under Black and Green Press right. uh, account and and advertises his projects. So, so he himself doesn't actually agree with what he's saying, which is that you know, uh, which is that social media is he a does way plug to plug his projects through. Which yeah. is yeah, that social media is is a way to connect to your audience, mm-hmm. and um, and he absolutely has an audience, and they're on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and yeah, sure, I would say the same thing for myself, but I would also say that uh, I'm I have different concerns than either the interviewer and Kevin when it comes to these sort of topics, which is something about um, uh, what does it mean to age? And the day that I disconnect from social media, I, I basically age 20 years. Um, and, and that's not because I think it's right or like there, there's not a value associated with it. It's just the fact that like everyone who I know that is in their twenties is in interacting with each other in this way. I'm 20 years older than that, than them already and barely can sort of keep up. And I actually just, this this week decided to commit to my Instagram account more than I have in the past. And that's just because a, a whole bunch of my friends have, have logged off of Facebook and all the rest for exactly the same reasons that Kevin's talking about. They basically think that arguing about bullshit all the time is a waste of time, which it totally is, which it totally is. <laughs> and that Instagram is just them looking at pictures of their friends and, pictures of what their friends are doing and and I kind of get it like that that like the idea of Instagram or Snapchat being these responses to fucking bullshit waste of time that makes sense and but but still staying staying somewhat engaged with with your people yeah I like that and then uh, just to close one other line uh, it's about halfway through the interview <clears throat> Kevin says quote that amplifies into the anarchist world we spend so much time trying to chase out every boogeyman concept and having the perfectly worded subjective expression of anarchism. Why? What does that do? You see this, uh, sorry, you see this as prevalent in a magazine like Black Seed, where subjectivism runs rampant. They see a statement as, quote, civilization is wrong, end quote, as moralistic and therefore problematic. I really couldn't care less. If I can't say civilization, the system that is killing the planet and all life on it, is, quote, wrong, end quote, then what do I have to say to anyone? I had to smile when I read this because uh, Kevin is doing a thing that I know Kevin does because he told me that he does this, which is he criticizes someone without naming them in order to sort of doubly negate them, so negate the argument without drawing any attention to the person. And Kevin is responding to something that I wrote in Black Seed uh, that he said he was going to fully engage with and write a response to, and I think at this point he has decided that that's not something that he wants to do. And that's probably because we've spent enough time arguing, and maybe it's not interesting to either of us to. What, what did you say? What did I say in Black Sea? Mm -hmm. Oh, I wrote a um, article that was arguing that anarcho-primitivism, its whole way of framing the world, is is a kind of Platonism. It's full of these uh, moral categories. It's full of these strange metaphysical categories. And I was saying that that's is actually a very civilized way of thinking about the world, and it's it's laid out there at length. And um, at the time, uh, that was supposed to be a debate in Kevin's magazine, and it didn't happen because of a, a sort of miscommunication where I was giving him something that he didn't want, basically, and I didn't realize that. And at the time, I said, well, I'm going to publish it in Black Seed, and he said, okay, well, I'm definitely going to write a response. And he has not engaged with it, and I think this is sort of his... Uh, offhanded way of doing that, which he also did in a piece that he wrote in Black and Green Review. And I think he's decided not to give me airtime. <laughs> right. I think that this is a very interesting way to um, 
uh, to engage with your sort of like your critical opposition or whatever. Yeah. I mean, crime thing does it all the time. Right. Um, this is actually one of the things that I think ended some of the excitement that Ajoda was involved with 10 years ago or so, because, um, where basically they were really critically engaging with the platformists and with that tradition. And at some point, Nefax stopped responding mm. and, or people who sort of were aligned with that. And, um, and so this is sort of where critique butts heads uh, with um, maybe not propaganda, but something like media. propaganda. Yeah. yeah, it's not just media. It's like um, it's a way in which you politically marginalize your opposition. Right. And and partially that's by not giving them any oxygen at all. Yeah. And I've definitely thought about this a lot in the in the last decade because of this uh, because of what happened with the Jota. But I also think that it's interesting that. On the one hand, Kevin is trying to ice out sort of any voices that aren't uh, in alignment with his position, whereas John, of course, does this the opposite. Yeah, does the opposite. Uh, I recently was listening to a whole bunch of John's radio shows, and just you know, just he just goes on and on and on, misconstruing the other position. So it's sort of a different way of doing propaganda, which is to totally misunderstand and misconstrue your opposition, yeah. but definitely to talk about them a lot. Yeah, and Kevin told me, um, back when we were in good terms, that this was something he very deliberately did with uh, DGR and Bookchin, and it seems like that's what he's doing now. Yeah. So, you know, subjectivism, what the hell is that? <laughs> but And especially because Black Sea des- described itself as an anti-civilization project, I think, from the very beginning, and, and you know, it's so it's, it's just sort of a, a strange, like, uh, convoluted way to win a point in a contest that nobody else is running or win interested in i will say though um in defense of the thing that kevin is arguing against and and sort of you know my problem with moralists is um uh saying that civilization is wrong is a moralist statement that's Mm -hmm. absolutely moralist i mean the definition of moralism is sort of assigning moral attributes to, to to in this case abstractions and so I, I'm absolutely happy to accept it. Like, if if the title of his paper, or whatever, is that you know civilization is wrong, and 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 within, he spends his time spelling that out. I mean, that's fine. And 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 more pointedly, I would say that he does do that. There's something about the way in which a lot of our argumentation is distilling into these sort of sound bites that I I detest. Which is one of the reasons why I don't give a lot of sound bites. And, and why I've really been trying to resist it as a as a way to respond to the fact that I've been attacked lately with so many sound bites is that I just I just despise it. It's not communication. It's something else, and that something else is fine. In this case, it's you know I guess building a a, a movement of political rewilders, but but that's not you know like it's just not my project. And obviously what he's saying here is that it is his project. It's specifically civilization is wrong, and those who share that moral value should join together and do things. And that's great. Do those things. Yeah, and I mean, Kevin has um, made clear more than once, including in the interview that we did with him in Free Radical Radio, that he says, you know, I consider um, these sorts of hyper-philosophical, nuanced conversations where you have to be careful about everything you say, to be a waste of time and it's not interesting okay yeah that's fun moving on okay so do you want to bring up the topic of the week spiel sure sure 
dollars The fool or the scholar Creole poet or white collars Who trades his country for dollars Um, so I, I actually have been sort of staying away from the A News world for the past couple of weeks, somewhat intentionally, but I did like the uh, topic of the week because mostly because it related to something that uh, some listeners had engaged with us a while ago, and so the, the Anarchist News topic of the week for discussion was, as anarchists living in a consumer-driven industrial world where so much of our lives is dominated or facilitated by the state, or what we may call capitalism, what can we consider to be real in our lives, if anything? Are we truly in a society of the spectacle, or perhaps lost in the depths of post-modernity or some similar state of extreme alienation that makes the real impossible? Are we truly separated from nature, or are these all simply labels and empty theories that can only attempt to frame the chaotic and complicated world around us? What sort of actions, relationships, projects, discussions, experiences, ideas, group or family dynamics, or anything else, seem to feel genuine or authentic to us? Is it the way you eat or obtain food, have sex, meet strangers or form connections, face enemies, create things you love, destroy things you despise, or something else entirely? What gives those things real qualities or drives you to engage in them as anarchists? Or is anything that could be considered real reserved for revolutionary moments or aspirations? And how would such moments or ideals be obtained? And this reminded me of two different engagements we had had with listeners, one being with Sadiq Khan, who several weeks ago was saying, um, you know, I don't understand how you can talk about revolution in this way of saying it, that it's not absolutely intrinsic and uh, the meaning really of the anarchist project. Um, and he quoted, I think it was one of the romantic poets or something, saying uh, a happy people in an unhappy world, it, it's not possible or something like that. And so basically saying, how, you know, how can you talk about meaningful anarchist projects that aren't leading toward revolution? And then also, quite a while before that, the folks behind the Haters podcast were um, surprised that we took issue with their statement that was something like, capitalism taints everything in our lives, or something like that. Um, and yeah, I guess um, the way that I want to engage with that question is to say, you know, sometimes anarchism gets talked about as the beautiful idea, or you know, the, the, the sort of revolutionary fantasy, and I think um, that's one way to talk about it that puts it in a sort of limited way of thinking about it that says you know, it's this discrete thing, either it's realized or it's not, and that's all there is. Um, but I think there is some truth to that statement in the sense that an anarchist orientation in life can be very much focused about you know, the what if. And so when I read this question like that, it seems to be evoking that and saying our lives are necessarily miserable and limited, or, or at least implies that that's a possibility. And my reply to that is to say something like what Schrodinger said of, you know, the world is only given once. Um, you know, there's, there's not uh, life and then our concept of life. There's really just life. And so to, to answer that question, I would say, well, yes, of course, uh, you know, my life has, has meaning and value and beauty in it because what else do I have to compare it to except uh, this completely conceptualized fantasy? And so I'm not going to say, oh, my life is meaningless because it could only be meaningful in this fantasy because that's something I never have experienced and I never probably never will experience. And so I'm not going to weigh it against something that doesn't even really exist. That's great. <laughs> Obviously, there's been an active conversation around this topic, mostly not addressing any of the this sort of a question? Mm -hmm. um, what do you 
like, did you have any response to any of the responses, or like? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, you know the haters actually. The one of them was specifically saying like, I don't know how you say that because uh, I, I made an offhanded comment about like, well, I mean, in in moments of loving sex, like I don't feel like capitalism is ruining my life, and um, one of the people behind that project seemed totally taken aback by that and was saying, how can you say that? And I didn't totally engage with the response because at the time I was like, eh, I'm not, not really going to talk about my sex on the podcast. But I, I guess to be more fair to them, I would say, well, you know, of course I'm, my sexual desires have been shaped by things like gender and pornography and all those sorts of things. I'm not going to pretend that I haven't been shaped by this culture in ways that are toxic, but I still, you know, I'm not going to, to weigh it against some kind of imagined, like, oh, I'm totally pure and untainted. Um, I still think there's absolutely beauty and value to, to be had in this life that I live, which is all that I have. Hmm. Yeah, the direction I come at this with is a little different because I think about the 90s and the consensus among anarchists during that time was that we had to create the world that we wanted to live in. Uh -huh. And so sort of the organizational types would talk about dual power and they would talk about the f whatever it is that we were doing, we were doing on behalf of a future revolution. Right. But for the rest of us, we were doing it for what we were getting out of it today. So whatever, in the quintessential example, you know, I, I live and breathe in a squat and dumpster dive the food that we eat so that we can have as much free time as possible and live outside of capitalism. Sure. And these ideas have entirely fallen out of vogue. And the reason why that's the case, I think, is a very interesting example. Because one of the primary reasons why this has fallen out of vogue is because of something that basically the haters said, which is that if you don't, if, if we don't all agree to work really hard, we're not going to get the big goal if we just settle for these, for this bullshit goal. So your life that you're calling free or that where this escape that, that you're taking is, is essentially prohibiting the, the, the revolution from yeah, coming. Yeah. And, and, um, and I think that there's five or six other reasons why, why this has fallen out of vogue that, that we could talk about separately. But it does feel like right now that there is a lot of people who are much more concerned with the pie in the sky than they are with sort of living a life that, that has any echo of what, what it looked like in the 90s. And perhaps it's because anarchists, being a youth culture, tend to, to, to absolutely despise the youth culture that came before them. And to some extent, you know, what we're talking about got um, got commoditized, at least conceptually, by a, a version of crime think that no longer exists. Yeah. Do you think that's partially also because of the popularity of privilege politics right now, which say that if you're able to live this enjoyable life, it's largely because of the amount of privilege that you have, and therefore you should feel bad about that and be a martyr? There's a cart and a horse thing there. I mean, that, that uh, politic existed in the past. Uh, Shall we move on? Or is yeah, more? sure. No, that's great. Okay. So since we did the right before, now we're going to talk about the left. Yeah, 
specifically the, I would say, the anti-authoritarian left. I, I don't think it would be interesting to talk about the, the merits and uh, the pros and cons of the Soviet Union or something like that. Sure. Um, Although we did talk about reading the Communist Manifesto to <laughs> inform our discussion today. <laughs> uh, yeah. So just to, to quickly talk about the, the abuses of the term, you know, last week we talked about how the right is wrongly taken to be synonymous with authoritarianism and just the bad. And then the left sometimes is seen as the good or people who are for freedom or against authority. Specifically for egalitarian. Yeah. Well, that's what I would say is, is the more specific thing. And, you know, a lot of people don't even realize that left and right, I mean, these terms come out of the French Revolution and where people were sitting in the parliament at the time. Um, and so sometimes the left is taken to be the good. Sometimes it's taken to be you're not anarchist enough. But to, to be more specific about it, um, you know, it's the opposite of the right. So it valorizes the society or the culture over the individual. The individual is seen as the product of cultural forces rather than uh, the product of their own inherent constitution. Um, it valorizes egalitarianism over inegalitarianism, sees egalitarianism as either natural, people really are equal or desirable in society or necessary to have a functioning society. And it valorizes the future over the past. Generally, there's a progressive worldview. Partially, that's informed, of course, by the dialectical worldview that was put up by Hegel and Marx, but also just generally people who, are, who see things as getting better, that there's a struggle toward freedom and inclusion, that is the liberal project, and that people are becoming uh, more fair to each other, more compassionate, more enlightened, one, one thing or another like this. Yeah, I mean, just to, um, how I frame this particular question and, and you know why I sort of don't feel that implicated when people say, if you're post-left or if you're against the left, then, then basically by default you're some version of right, is... Um, uh, because I think that to say that you're part of the left implies a lot of things that most people don't necessarily want to be part of, but specifically in the context of talking about like the revolutionary project, the, the idea of changing the world, all the, uh, the details and the examples of what uh, Bellamy just brought up have to do with how one envisions a post-ATR world. So in other words, I'm a, one would say that I'm a leftist because fundamentally I want a world that is egalitarian in nature. And so to me, the, talking about whether or not someone's part of left is basically talking about one. Does someone agree with that statement that, that what they want is a more egalitarian world? And then the second is how does one think that they are, are going to achieve that world? In other words, the tactics and the strategies of the left are very different than the tactics and strategy of the right. And for me, these are the, are the huge open questions. And, and ultimately, uh, I think that the French Revolution is the historical moment that we should be talking about when we talk about these, this particular conversation, because a particular political moment happened in France in, in the 18th century that, that can, it could be argued has not happened since, or it's happened so differently that, that basically that using right and, the, and, and left is such a mutation that, yeah. that you're, it, you're basically creating your own words and just using an old word to, to, to redefine the, the, the new thing that you're creating. So specifically, you know, the French Revolution is one of the few moments where you could actually talk about masses of people dragging uh, uh, the upper classes to the, to the guillotine and, 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 and then moving on. And 
so so this is a moment that like why did this happen? Why did it happen in France in the way that it did? And and I just I just can't uh, do any of this sort of thinking or calculation and make any parallel to the world that I live in. France in the 18th century could not be further from the United States in the 21st century. There is so little in common. The idea, like, I think it's totally valid to say that there there's a, a possibility that the people of D.C. rise up as, as one and perhaps take out some senators. Perhaps that's, you know, like within the possibility of the imagination. But I don't believe that a reign of terror that lasts decades and that, and that, impacts all levels of society. I don't believe that, that the people, uh, even if they had a, a really, really big guillotine, w- would be capable of doing anything of that, of that nature. In other words, one of the central conceits of a leftist perspective, which is the idea that the people are, are of one mind and that the people are able and, and engaged to take action based on the, 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 the singular mind, I, I just don't, I don't see it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's again, uh, I mean, I feel as much um, adversity toward that kind of perspective of what the world is actually made up of, that kind of ontological perspective that I talked about earlier. I feel as much animosity toward the way the left thinks of people in, in masses, thinks of people as just being walking intersections of various cultural forces. I, I feel, reject that as much as I do the, the atomic, self-created, free-willed, right-wing conception of human beings. Um, would you say that egalitarianism has a lot to do with your vision of anarchism? Or how much does it have to do with it? Yeah, I mean, we would have to slow down and start talking about what do we mean by the term. Because I've never seen a version of egalitarian that doesn't look like the shrieking cry of no. Which, a lot of times, that's what's necessary, right? This world is a, is a horrifically inegalitarian place, and so I recognize where that urge comes from. But that's not that that shrieking no isn't the way in which I want to build something Wait, what different. What do you mean by shrieking no? Um, I mean I think that most of us experience that sh- that shriek in the context of like a collective meeting. <laughs> like we're all sitting around in a, in a circle, and someone decides that it's time to say no as to as to what the agenda of that circle is, and to, to now it's time to start talking about a different agenda. And, and, you know, I'm not saying that those conversations aren't useful, aren't good, um, but that's the kind of egalitarianism that I've, that I've mostly been acquainted with in my life, which is basically some minoritarian perspective basically saying, like, what about me? So, to imagine it, the, the kind of egalitarianism that one imagines in sort of, you know, Maoist China, um, I, I mean, culturally... In the U.S., that seems very, that seems very surreal. Like it seems like a total disconnect from what Americans would ever uh, choose to to be associated with. So, so maybe there's a third version of egalitarianism that's maybe more balanced. I mean, I I love the idea of you know, let's say the Rainbow Family, and the idea that everyone gets fed. I mean, perhaps I could define an egalitarianism that that sort of meets Maslow's needs. Sure. And then, and then you know, you got to deal with the, with the, the the top needs yourself, <laughs> you know. But, yeah. but like like your your body gets nourished in, yeah. in an egalitarian society. You have, you have shelter, and and 
you know, and perhaps that's an egalitarian that, that you know, every socialist and uh, uh, can, can accept. But, I, but to me, that's not an organizing principle of a society. And frankly, of course, I guess this question of, is my future anarchism look like a society? And, and that's perhaps where this question really comes to light for me, because the answer to, is no. Or, or, you know, to put it in the postmodern gobbledygook that I'll, I'll, we'll get accused of no matter what we say anyways, it, it will be thousands of societies, millions of societies. And, uh, and, and in other words, the transformation will, will be such that all the things that we call society today will, will, will not be a qualified term to, to describe this future world. But that's but I but I, I say that just to just to say, like, and that's imagination. Sure. That's and 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 the transformation from this to there w- would be so disruptive, would be so transformational. I mean, this is why I can can continue to have conversations with quote unquote revolutionaries is because what they want to talk about and what I want to talk about are equally fantastical. Just mine include dragons, you know. Theirs revert to ancient Marxist textbooks. Sure. Yeah, I think, um, again, right, the devil's in the details. So if egalitarianism means what it means to some people, which is not having institutional hierarchy, well, sure, of course, just by being an anarchist, I'm on board with that. And if it means what it means to another subset of people, which is that there's not clutching horrible poverty where people's basic needs aren't being met, then of course I'm an egalitarian. But that's about where the train stops for me for the same reasons that if egalitarianism means the existence of a society where you have some kind of distributionism or some kind of quantification where everyone's supposed to get the same amount of stuff and they're supposed to log their hours that they spent in the fields and if someone did 36 hours instead of 40 hours last week when they were in the fields and we saw them you know, taking a couple eggplants for themselves, that that's a problem, then, of course, you know, we've entered into a realm that's totally disgusting to me. And what I would say to the ardent egalitarian is, is that actually what your life looks like? Do you actually treat people equally in your interactions with them, or do you treat them all uniquely because you have distinct relationships with all of them? Um... I'm not interested in some sort of end-state ethic that's a foundationalist ethic where it says we have to get to this point where everyone's got the same amount of stuff and they do the same amount of work. That's um, once you, you're motivated by uh, some kind of fantastical vision like that and then say, how do we get there? Then you know, you've entered into a, a pretty gross realm, I think, that um, tends to lead to a, a sort of ends-justify-the-means way of operating. And you know, I've always been sensitive to the idea that you know, people have very different talents, they're drawn toward different things, and that people like being good at things. And so when I see, um, rather than this kind of hard distributionist ethic, when I see something like what little I know about the way that the potlatch was working in the, for various American tribes, or American Indian tribes in the Northwest, where... You, know, you recognize the fact that people like to be good at things and they like prestige and that can very easily turn into an ugly toxic thing but it doesn't have to be especially if that uh, prestige means showing your power in the, the same way that um, Nietzsche talked about it with Zarathustra's overflowing cup where you're just you 
demonstrate your achievements by giving shit away, by gifting. Um, and I, I know that there's all kinds of nuance here I'm leaving out, where there was, I think, to a greater or lesser extent, an aristocracy in, among the people who practiced that, and I'm not even talking about that, I'm just talking about it in the broadest way. No, sure, anthropologists know an awful lot about other people's cultures. Yep. <laughs> That's always been my understanding. <laughs> Especially in the context of uh, colonial devastation when you're observing them. Yeah, for sure. So did you want to end on that snarky note? I saw you wheeling around there. It seemed like you wanted to bring something else up. No, no, I was uh, uh, distracted by the problems of the world. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that, that more or less I'm... You, you've made a very good final point, which just, just to, to reiterate, which is it's possible to conceive of other ways of behaving that um, that are more complicated than basically the name-calling that a lot of anarchists tend to do or a lot of leftists tend to do to other people. So this question of egalitarianism, I think, is going to be a consistent one for us and, and I think for any perspective that's trying to challenge the left is to talk about what does a, you know, to, to put it into losing Guattari's terms, a stratiated uh, way of life look like. And and I think it's it's um, it, it's going to be complicated to to argue for it in the face of just how right the term egalitarian sounds, mm. and um, and so that's an adventure I, I look forward to us uh, continuing when we when we talk about you know some of our ideas about what what we're going to do to put some of this oh, rhetoric yeah. into into context. Thank you for listening. And again, you can email us at thebrilliant at thebrilliant.org. Peace.